Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This morning is the seventh and final sermon in a series we've been doing this Christmas season called Characters Around the Cradle. And we've looked at Mary and Joseph. We've looked at the shepherds and the angels. We've looked at Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. And this morning we come to the wise men or the magi in Matthew chapter 2. Now the scripture has already been read for you in our, in our Advent reading or Epiphany reading. As I begin, I want to uh, point out something I pointed out before here in the, from the pulpit at Mercy Hill in Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, is a description of two very different towns in the 19th century, London and Paris. In this morning's passage, we have a, a tale of two kings, if you will, or two kinds of people or characters around the cradle. And like Dickens' cities, they are opposites. Herod, on the one hand, is a Jew, but he hates God and tries to destroy God's Messiah. The Magi, on the other hand, are Gentiles who fear God and desire to honor him and his Messiah child. As I said, the scripture has already been read, but let's review the story together and see what we can learn new or fresh about this very familiar Christmas tale. First of all, who are these men? The Greek gives them the name Magi. We, the, the Bibles that we're reading from this morning, the ESV describes them as wise men. The fact that three gifts were mentioned in our passage has led some to believe that there were only three wise men, but the text does not tell us the exact number of the Magi. Sometimes tradition has suggested that these men are kings, which is an inference, not in this text, but based on Isaiah 60, verse 3, which is a prophecy of the Messiah that says, nations will be drawn to your light and kings to the dawning of your day. As I said, the ESV calls these men wise men, and this is accurate. The Magi's wisdom consisted in the fact that they studied the stars as well as interpreting stars and dreams for the impact they would have on our lives. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read about a similar wise men who were kept in the court of king, the king of Babylon in Daniel's time. This is in Daniel chapter 5, verse 7. Part of the work of these advisors likely resembled that of scientists who study the stars today. These are called astronomers. Another part of their work involved attempting to ask how the movement of the stars might influence or affect human life on Earth. This practice we call today astrology. So the Magi's wisdom combined both secular and religious aspects of knowledge and understanding. The text indicates that they are from the east, which means that they are Gentiles, probably from the region of either Turkey or Iran. Their journey would have taken them long, as long as five months, in order to get from where they lived to Jerusalem. And they would have made the journey, if you can imagine it, in a caravan, and sometimes the Magi are pictured as riding on camels, which is probably accurate. This caravan of travelers would have been a group of people that traveled together both for supplies and for safety. 
The men were likely familiar with Judaism and with Jews, since the Jews during the, the exile were, were sent to Babylon, and many lived there for, for many years, and many didn't return to Israel under the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. They stayed. These Jews of the dispersion would have been familiar to the scholars in Babylon at the time, and it's very likely that they had heard about the promise of the Messiah and the Jewish prophecies about his coming. Well, that's who they were. What did they see? Over the years, many theologians and commentators have tried to figure out what the star was. I myself have done my own bit of study in this, and I've gone back and forth over the years as to what exactly these wise men saw in the heavens. One theory is that the remark, there was a remarkable conjunction of planets, that is to say, the planets Jupiter and Saturn lined up one behind one another from Earth's perspective so that it looked like a very large star instead of two smaller lights in the heavens. And this conjunction took place in this time around 7 BC in the constellation Pisces. Commentator Tom Houston explains it this way. In late May of 7 BC, there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, a part of the heavens noted in astrological science as one in which the signs denoted the greatest and most notable events on Earth. In October of the same year, another conjunction of the same planets took place in the same place, and then again in December for a third time. Here's how Houston pieces the story together. The wise men may have observed the first of these three conjunctions in the east in May. If they started their journey around that time, they would have arrived in Jerusalem in about five months, in time for the second conjunction in October. If they set out from Jerusalem to Bethlehem in the evening, as is implied, the December conjunction in 15 degrees of Pisces would have been before them in the direction of Bethlehem. That's an interesting theory. Whether this happened to these three men, we have no way of knowing. It may have been a supernatural light, which is what I felt in the past. It may have been, as this explanation proposes, that it was nothing supernatural about it at all, other than the fact that God has made the stars and he controls their movements through his providence. It may be that through an ordinary astrological, astronomical event, God communicated to these men something great was happening in the world. Whatever it was, something they saw in the sky was aligned in a manner that made them conclude that a royal birth was taking place in Judea. It was such a strong confirmation in their minds that they were willing to spend the better part of a year of their lives going and returning to discover exactly what it was. Well, what about Herod's response? You can imagine the shock to hear about and see such an entourage as this, arriving in Jerusalem, asking for a newly born king of the Jews. Historians note that the Magi happened to arrive at a time when the succession to the throne of the king of Israel was in significant dispute. King Herod in our passage was also known as Herod the Great, and he ruled Judea with the support of Rome from 37 BC all the way to 4 BC. He was known not only for his extensive building projects, 
but also for his cruelty and his ruthless manner. As it happened, when the Magi arrived, Herod himself was increasingly showing signs of having a terminal illness. There was concern about who would succeed him amongst all his many sons. And just to illustrate the kind of trouble that was in the air, consider this historical anecdote. Five days before Herod died, he had one of his sons, Antipater, murdered. And after having his son murdered, he rewrote his will for the umpteenth time. Children, I just want you to think about this when you complain about your parents. They're not as bad as Herod. So the reason that the Herod and the whole city were upset is that the possible birth of a messianic heir to the king of Israel, the throne of David, would potentially throw all of Herod's plans for succession in turmoil. But Herod, as we see in our reading, pretended to be interested in this king as any godly Jewish king would be, should be. So he called together all the chief priests and the scribes. And by the way, I would not have been excited to go to Herod's court if I were a chief priest or a scribe at this time. Herod had already ruthlessly suppressed and murdered any number of the high priests who were challenging his legitimate claim to the throne, which was given to him, by the way, by the Roman emperor. In any case, these priests and scribes come together, all the learned religious men of the society at the time, and he asks them about the birthplace of the Messiah, and it is interesting how quickly they respond. It is almost as if the expectation of the Messiah was at the forefront of everyone's mind at the time. And when Herod finds out the birthplace where the prophecy predicted the Messiah would be born, rather than, as the shepherds do, divulge this information in joyful proclamation of the good news, he seems in our text to somewhat keep the information to himself. And he makes a further inquiry. When exactly did the star appear? It seems to me that our text is suggesting that Herod wants to determine or ascertain as closely as possible the age of the child so he may find the child and do what he wishes with the child, which later on in Matthew chapter 2 we learn is exactly what he attempts to do. It seems as if Herod is thinking, if I can determine when the star appeared, and if it appeared on or around the time that the mystery child was born, I can better find out who this child is. But we know that Herod's not sincere in his, in his interest or in his inquiry. Well, what happens next? What is the Magi's discovery? Well, next in our story, the Magi discover where the child was lying. The conjunction of stars may have happened again, or it may have been a supernatural light of some kind, as I've already mentioned. We don't really know. The star rises and then settles, whatever that means. When the Magi saw it, they were indescribably happy. In verse 10 of our passage, we're told that their joy is unrestrained. The Magi's years of study had led them to this unprecedented and unimaginable experience, and there were no words to describe how they felt. What they do next is that they bring out gifts that they had prepared. Now, the gifts are very interesting, and people have debated and discussed what's the symbolism or the significance of the gifts. The text doesn't tell us. Church history has given this or that explanation. We know that they're costly gifts, and we know that they're important gifts. We also know that these gifts are typical of gifts that are presented to royalty or to a king. Not only that, though, and I think more importantly, we see these Gentile 
astronomers and astrologers bowing in worship before the child. What an experience this must have been for Mary and for Joseph, adding to all that they had already seen and had taken place thus far in this young boy's life. How would they have known to worship this child? Again, Tom Houston offers the insight. Clearly, by some means not spelled out for us, God had not left himself without a witness in the minds of these men. Their journey to find Jesus was the climax of their search. It was a link between the stars and their courses in the heavens, these men's interpretation of them, the explicit guidance from Herod's sources, including biblical prophecy, and then, once again, being providentially led to the exact location where Jesus and Mary were living at the time. All of these things coincided in God's providential plan. After these events, if they had any doubts about Herod's intentions, God removed those doubts by warning them in a dream that they should not return the same way in which they had traveled, but to go home by another route, Matthew 2.12. Well, we never see the wise men again in the Gospels after this verse. They disappear completely from our story, but they certainly leave us with a lot to think about. In hearing me retell the story, there's probably more questions than we have answers about these strange and mysterious scholars of the ancient world. Here are a couple of things that I think we can conclude. God has included the wise men in our story as witnesses. They corroborate like a good witness should. They verify as an outside, unbiased presence that what was said about the Christ child and his mother is absolutely true. I also think they show the power of God at work in the world. You heard me describe all of the events that had to coordinate, precisely coordinate, in order for them to arrive at their destination. It shows us that God's providence works not just in extraordinary ways by a miraculous virgin birth that cannot be explained by scientific or natural means, but it also shows that God very well may have worked in through natural means, the ordinary movements of the stars and the careful decades-long research that these men must have devoted themselves to in becoming experts in interpreting the movements of the heavens. I also think that the Magi hint at the fact that those who will ultimately worship the Messiah will not just be Jews, but will come from all nations. Even pagan lands, even astrologers will bow the knee before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They are proof that even the Gentiles will find their hope in Jesus, which, by the way, Matthew says at the very last verse of his gospel, he says, sending his 12 disciples now Go ye into all the world, go to Babylon and beyond, and bring the good news that Jesus Christ is born, lived, died, and has risen again. I think in this way, the Magi are set up as intentional contrast with the so-called Jewish king, Herod. By the way, he's not any legitimate king. He got his kingship with the permission of the Roman emperor. Think about this. Since when does the king of God's chosen people required the permission of a pagan emperor in order to, to do his work as king. No wonder he was opposed by so many of the religious leaders of the time. No, King Herod was a fake, a fraud. And Matthew intends you to compare the response of the Magi 
to Jesus with Herod's. We're actually being invited here to consider what our response would be. Consider this list of comparisons between the Magi and King Herod. First of all, lies versus truth. Herod is nothing but a deceiver in this passage. He's lied about his legitimate right to the throne. He's lied about his interest in the child. And he's lied about, um, in fact, everything related to Jesus. But the Magi, on their hand, do nothing but tell the truth. Second, murder versus honor and protection. Herod is only about killing and destroying for his own selfish purposes. So he's seeking the child in order to kill the child. The Magi, on the other hand, seek to honor the child, and as a result, they wind up doing their best to protect the child's life. Three, resistance versus submission. Herod imagines the child to be a threat, and he is correct in this, because Herod is a false, pretending uh, king, because he doesn't really belong on the so-called throne of David. He is right to feel threatened by the coming of the Messiah. Simeon has explained that he, Jesus, is destined to be the case of the rising and falling of many in Israel, and Herod is about to fall. The Magi, on the other hand, recognize Jesus at some level for who he is and bow before him in worship. In the end, then, Herod resists God, but the Magi submit to God and follow him. Speaking of which, ignoring God fourthly versus following God. By sending his son into the world, God is trying to and intends to get our attention. He intends us to pay attention, to listen. But Herod ignores God's message in preference for following his own agenda and keeping with his pre-existing plan. On the other hand, the Magi hear the message of God clearly, and they hear it in quite an unusual way, at least to my thinking as as a modern reader, Somehow God gets their attention through their study of the stars. Think about it this way. They're going about their research. They're studying the stars. And God uses their studies in this most unusual manner to communicate a message about himself. And they hear it and they follow it. Fifthly, anger versus joy. I love this one because Herod is angry and distressed and troubled at the news that the Messiah might well have been born in Bethlehem. But the Magi, on the other hand, are nothing but excited. In fact, they're exuberant. Their joy cannot be contained. It's the, the, the text piles words upon words to describe how filled with joy these men are, anger versus joy. Before I conclude this morning, I want to illustrate with another character around the cradle one that we sing about in one of our famous Christmas carols. He's also known as a king, but like the Magi, he's not really a king. His name is Good King Wenceslas. And I spoke about this king a couple of years ago during our church's Epiphany Feast, and I'll repeat a couple of my comments from that time. Here's how the first verse of the carol goes. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen, All the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel, when a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. As the hymn progresses, we discover that King Wenceslas 
is determined to help this poor man and engages him on an errand of mercy. Thus the king and his servant or page help him despite the fact that the cold is dangerous and painful. At one point the page is worried he won't survive and Wenceslas in the hymn encourages the young man to walk in his footsteps suggesting that the heat of the footsteps will keep the page warm. And so the carol continues telling this beautiful story of how the king wound up helping and serving the poor. Well, as history has it, this king Wenceslas was not a king, as I mentioned, but was actually a duke. He was royalty, but he wasn't a king. But he was a duke who was a famous uh, witness or martyr in the ancient country of Bohemia, which is now known as the Czech Republic. And in fact, there's a statue of King Wenceslas in the Czech Republic that commemorates his witness for Jesus Christ and his mar- and eventual martyrdom. He gave his life for the faith. I love this story because it shows, A, how what, what a wonderful heritage we have in our Christmas carols that we sing every year that we don't necessarily know about. But B, it paints a picture of a godly man who witnessed to Christ in caring for the poor and it ultimately cost him his life. In this way, I see a parallel between Wenceslas, try saying that 10 times fast, and the Magi, an unlikely witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, doing deeds which would have otherwise gone unremembered had they not been recorded for us in history. Somewhat marginal or somewhat insignificant character around the cradle, and yet one that I can relate to, because these aren't famous people in any other way. We don't even know their names, in fact, in terms of the Magi. But their witness, their their testimony remains and it endures for us to this day. And unlike Wenceslas, the Magi, we're told, did not have to surrender their lives. They were persecuted in a way. They were used by a wicked man for wicked ends. And by God's grace, they managed to avoid it. So their martyrdom or their witness didn't result in them having to forfeit their lives. They did take another way home, by the way, which says to me that they were avoiding martyrdom that might have happened to them. As we think then about this, I want us to consider some applications for our lives. I want to ask you whether you're, first of all, listening to God's message. God has communicated himself to you in a very ordinary way, in a providential way. He's done it in his word. It's a simple book. And in this book, he's told you the story about his son. And you may be expecting some majestic, important sign in the heavens to indicate to you that Jesus is Lord and he, de- he deserves and desires you to give your life in following him. But this is the sign he's given. Does it anger you? Does it frustrate you? Are you doing your best to crowd out the message from your mind and to stick with your original plan? Or are you listening to the message that God is sending and making every effort to meet God and to do as God is commanding you and instructing you. I think another application here is that our response should be one that's emotional when we come before the king. Too often our emotions are restrained in matters of religion. We take cues from culture rather than scripture. 
have an entire book of the Bible called the book of Psalms that is dedicated to helping you express a biblical emotion, whether it's sadness or joy, anger, even frustration. Confusion is found in the Psalms as well as peaceful contemplation and reflection. Too often we let our emotions run away with you. Speaking personally, my emotions often get the better of me and God's given us the Psalms and the picture of the Magi in the Bible to remind me that my emotions belong to him and, and in this moment of of encountering the Messiah child, they were overwhelmed with emotions of joy. And I think we should do the same. The, the Bible tells men in particular to lift up holy hands in prayer. Are you too ashamed to raise your hands and recognize by, by unfettered hands that you are overwhelmed with joy for who God is and what he's doing in your life? Men, our emotions belong to God. and We should let him sanctify them and purify them, both when they're excessive and they need to be more restrained, and both when they're restrained and they need to be more expressed. I think a a third application is that the Magi went to great lengths to follow him, and in this I believe they're a picture of what it means for someone to take up his cross and follow me. Can you imagine the cost of a year's journey traveling five or more months, one way, on foot, what that must have cost them. Perhaps they were given a grant from the king of Babylon. He was, of course, funding science in his, in his administration. Little did he know that he was actually funding a missionary trip for these academics to discover and render homage and praise to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. What have you given up or what are you prepared to give up to follow Christ? Some of you feel a call to the pastoral ministry and I commend this. It's a noble calling. This this desk is a place of great influence, perhaps the greatest influence in the world where Christ speaks to his people, where Christ communicates his truth. But perhaps you're called to a secular vocation, to the study of the arts or sciences. And you're called to do this to the glory of God. And that may come for some of you at cost. Because being in the arts or sciences today is something where the Christian faith is not welcome. And where bending the knee to the Christ child in your academic studies may not be received by your colleagues or by your peers with popularity. It may be that you wind up suffering persecution of a soft variety being passed over for a promotion at work or not being given a grant for your research. But you're determined, like the Magi were, at any cost to find and to follow this child. This child who was born the king and who would live the perfect life that we could never live. This child who would, though king, die a servant's paupers and slave's death, die the death of a criminal on the cross, He was indeed born to die. And in dying on the cross for our sins, he rises as only a king could in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And he offers this victory to you and to all of his elect people freely that you might become yourselves kings and queens, sons and daughters of the king, adopted into the family and seated at the royal table. This is the promise 
of Christmas, and this is the witness of the Magi. Will you follow him? Will you follow them? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas season and the characters around the cradle that we've looked at each week throughout Christmas. We We're so grateful for the scriptures and the way that they teach us and point us to you. I pray, Lord, that your word, which has been both read and explained this morning, would not be left, as it were, on the page, but we would take it and apply it to our lives in some of the ways that have been explained. We pray, Lord, that you indeed will have spoken to your people and that Christ himself would have would have. Uh, been the true word of God to us today. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that does not know you or is tuning in this morning who is struggling with their faith, struggling with doubt or skepticism or even burdened by sin, Lord, that you would release them from this burden and liberate them that they might be filled with this, even a portion of this overwhelming joy that we see in our passage this morning that the Magi felt. They rejoiced with an exuberant joy irrepressible. Lord, may that characterize not only the rest of our worship this morning, but also the rest of our Lord's day today and this whole year as we take up our crosses and follow you and pursue you wherever you may lead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.